process improvement wise, we're really focusing mostly on relationships, um, just making sure we have cooperation when we need it. So it's really just trying to create uniformity in the environment we work at and um, and cooperation. So an awful lot of PIs on relationships. You know, once UCSD really got more engaged and embraced the whole Lean Six Sigma, you know, that really fit well for us. What is why I think you see a lot of our staff because they are very much focused on what are we doing? Is this the best way to do it? And are there better ways to do it? And I think Lean Six Sigma has given them the roadmap on how to do that more effectively. Hey everybody, I'm Elizabeth Swan. And I'm Tracy O'Rourke. And we are from the Just In Time Cafe. Welcome to our podcast. At the cafe, we wrestle with tough questions, talk to groundbreakers, discuss great books, and get insights from Lean Six Sigma practitioners who are making a difference in the world. We let you in on helpful apps, we bring you the news, and we challenge the status quo so you can build your problem-solving muscles. So Elizabeth, what is on the cafe menu today? Okay, Tracy. Today's highlight is our interview with LifeSharing's Executive Director Jeff Tragesser and Mike Vasquez. LifeSharing is a nonprofit arm of UC San Diego Health dedicated to organ procurement, vital and, and compli uh, complicated, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, for hot apps, we'll cover an app you're probably aware of. Uh, you might be using it, but are you making the most of it? And we'll come back to that. And for Q&A, we'll discuss the topic of work relationships. Um, are you a just a facts man, kind of a Joe Friday type? Um, you know, if asking people about themselves feels like fluff to you, you know, are you hamstringing your own progress? Uh, Tracy and I are going get to get to the bottom of that uh, mm -hmm. and more. Okay, so up next is hot apps. This episode is steeped in the impact of relationships on our working world. Uh, and as you'd guess, there's an app for that. There are a lot of apps for that. Uh, you might use Facebook, you know, beyond your friends and family. You might appreciate the built-in brevity of Twitter or X. Uh, but the app we're discussing today is designed purely for work relationships, and that is LinkedIn. And the fact that it's designed to connect people based on what we do for a living makes it easier for me, you know, because all social media basically is work, right? And I confess, I stopped using Instagram because I got overwhelmed, right? Keeping up with everyone's posts. And I felt guilty if I didn't like people's pictures and, and comment. And that was eating up time. And I knew Facebook would pose the same challenge, so I opted out. But LinkedIn feels like a pure contract to me. It is work and it's about work. And I can definitely, you know, make it fun as well, or it's fun on its own, but the bargain's clear to me and I set time aside because I get a lot out of it. And Tracy, you use more social media apps than me, but what's your attitude toward LinkedIn? So, you know, LinkedIn, it's been really an interesting journey, especially after COVID. So I don't think I was very involved before COVID, but we found women in lean on LinkedIn and we have a lot of groups and we've made a lot of connections virtually. So I feel like it up the ante, right? For social media and LinkedIn in particular. And I have to be honest, I don't, you know, I don't feel guilty, but you and I've had this conversation. I, I can't keep up with everybody on LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, social media, Instagram, all that. 
I don't feel guilty though. Like I'm just happy to get on there when I can and see what people are doing and see what people are up to. And I love the fact that we are so busy all the time. And I, I actually feel good seeing people that I hadn't seen in a long time on Facebook and what they're up to and what they're doing. It brings me joy because I do like people and I, and I just, I, I smile, right? I, I know there's this studies that show that you're more, you're on Facebook, the more depressed you are, but that doesn't really apply to me. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And yeah. You're... So, so LinkedIn, um, I really love it too. And again, you are very consistent on LinkedIn. So I, you know, you, I aspire to that Elizabeth, because you are very consistent. You do spend time on LinkedIn and sometimes you have to ping me quite a bit to say, hey, you missed this person or you missed my webinar thing. You got to, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so um, I feel like I'm not as consistent as you and, but I do get joy out of it. And I, I, I same thing for work. I love seeing now that we've got an expanded group of people that we have met virtually, it's sort of the place to go to see what people are up to. And so I really love that. Yeah, you're good at pointing out that I am driven by guilt. And I remember someone telling me once, guilt is a great motivator. And maybe that just doesn't apply to you, but it does to me. So I have to monitor like what I agree to do because that's gonna, it's gonna drive some level of anxiety. But in terms of LinkedIn, I'm happy to access it. I do it pretty regularly, like you said. I wanna see what people are doing. I like to see what conferences are coming up. When people post like, kind of intriguing questions. I often join the conversation because I get insights what others po post. You know, I don't always agree. And that makes it even more useful to me. In fact, as you know well, <laughs> I use LinkedIn to write a book, you know, and I included some of those conversations that happened in the post. And that became, you know, the wisdom of the crowd section in, in every chapter. So going through that process of writing the blogs and at some point knowing I wanted to pull them into a book, and I made him made me more cognizant of what worked. And so a couple of things I learned were, you know, be mindful of the questions you pose. And you actually helped me with this, Tracy. I'd often show you the question I was going to post. And you'd sometimes tweak it a little bit. Because on a simple level, you know, make them open-ended, right? Don't ask yes, no questions. That seems kind of basic. But also consider what you want people to tell you. Like, do you want them to tell stories? Do you want to give you examples? And you helped me guide me on that one a lot. So I got better at asking questions. And then I also learned that, as you well know, uh, including visuals help. And in my case, I just drew illustrations that captured the topic, but graphics are great. Photos are awesome. So Tracy, you just posted a photo of you and our colleague, uh, one of the founders of the Kata Geek Girls, Tracy Defoe, playing pickleball. And the San Diego lean pickleball scene makes me intensely jealous, but I so love your posts. Those are so great. So you think ahead way better than I do um, in terms of the photos you want to post, don't you? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I find that I do really well in the moment, right? Like I am experiencing joy and, and then I take a photo and I post it right away. And actually, sometimes I have to go back and edit what I wrote because I wasn't as thoughtful as I would like to be. And also, you know, I don't have a lot of time. So, I, you know, I see sometimes people posting very lengthy posts and mine are always pretty short. And it's not that I 
um, don't appreciate it. It's just that, you know, I have a meeting in 10 minutes or something like that, but I do much better in the moment. And sometimes I take the picture and I go, oh, I'm going to post that. And then I realize, oh, I didn't post it. Right. So there's, there's actually over the, you know, like, for example, I just launched the new Lean Six Sigma Greenbelt class at UCSD and it's almost full. We have 18 of 20 students and I took a picture and I forgot to post it. And, and so I was like, oh, I forgot. So, um, but I will say that, and maybe this is my, you know, other social media training, if you will, Instagram and Facebook, but usually when I have a photo, I love to post that with a comment as opposed to anything else. It, it tends to drive me a little bit more. Yeah. And there's probably a lot of people out there that appreciate your brevity <laughs> that are like, yeah, and there's a, there's a short post with an awesome photo of people I know, and it's really engaging. And, and sometimes that just sparks a conversation right there. So I appreciate, and, I, and you are very much in the, in the moment. Um, in terms of how to like make the most of the app, people use hashtags and that just means, you know, three or so words or phrases that people are meant to be able to search on. And I confess, I've never used a hashtag to search. So I use them, but kind of sparingly. And I would say, you know, in a kind of an uneducated way, you know, and because we decided to cover LinkedIn this week, I asked our colleague, Karen Martin, kind of a LinkedIn power user about, you know, does she use hashtags? And she said she stopped and that most platforms are moving away from them, and which I didn't know. So I'm going to give that up too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so I agree. I don't use hashtags very much either. And um, I've never even clicked on a hashtag, right? Like if you click on a hashtag, it'll take you to a bunch of posts that people have also hashtagged that. And I think I've only done that three times, right? Where I'm like, oh, and I click on it and then it shows all these other posts. Um, but I don't know those people. <laughs> Yeah, no, you don't know those people. And that's so interesting that you've actually done it three times. And I realized uh -huh. I've never done it. Like, I was like, what is the disconnect here? I'm, I'm using these things like, oh, yeah, I should put some hashtags in there. And like, if you do like chat GPT and say, you know, what's a good title for this or whatever it is, and it'll throw out a bunch of hashtags you, uh, you should use. And I'm like, oh, yeah, hashtags, I should probably use those. And I'm like, no, I'm not using hashtags yeah. anymore. And to um, me, so... And I'll just say this really quickly. I, I did use a hashtag when I was at a conference. They said, use this hashtag. And that was before there's all these convention apps or conference apps. So that was really the one place you could go to see everybody posting um, if they were posting and using the hashtag. So that was really helpful because sometimes yeah. I wasn't connected to those people on LinkedIn. So I that particular application, I could find very helpful. But now I feel like when you go to conferences, they have an app and everybody's in the app and everybody's, you know, posting in this app now. Um, and so I'm seeing that happen a little bit more, but I, that's probably the most value I've seen in a hashtag is when you're at an event and you want to see what people are posting about the event and it's a way to share it. That's interesting. And, and in that you just described an evolution right? Okay. So hashtags are just for the world at large. And you, if you search on them, like you're saying, I don't know these people. And then if you're in a conference, now it's a smaller world, you know, this world and you want to know this world better, right? You go to conferences to network. So that's good. But then as you point out, now there's apps, the conference app. So yeah, that it just keeps changing. Um, no, that was fascinating. I didn't even tell you about that. So another helpful thing I learned 
and probably this was through doing all the posts about the uh, for the book was to break up your paragraphs you know give people that white space which is like giving them a breather you know between thoughts and then and this is a matter of taste i love including emojis and on one level i like the challenge like how could i sum up the gist of this paragraph with an image you know it does the work of the photo or a graphic only like on a teeny tiny scale so it, i love them so in my case i just have to watch out for like overdoing it what what other tips have you discovered tracy so adding pictures and adding little mini videos, I think, um, tends to get more um, responses. But I think probably the most important thing is to tag people that are it's relevant to the picture or relevant to the group or something like that. Because, again, like I said, I, I kind of already um, outed myself and said, I'm on LinkedIn when I have time. And... It, I won't see your post necessarily because I'm not consistently on it. And I actually appreciate being tagged. So if you want me to respond to something, tag me so that I actually I actually get a ping when I get tagged. And so I really appreciate that. So I, I try to do that for others as well. And I think that we have found, and Elizabeth, I don't know if you've seen a change or an evolution here too, but I, I feel like we get more responses when we tag people if we, rather than just not tagging anybody. What are your Absolutely. thoughts? Absolutely. I know I'm with you, Tracy. And I think like you, I'm thoughtful about it. Like who are the people I know have an opinion about this topic or, you know, like you and I might have a class and they're graduating. I want to try and tag as many of the graduates, you know, because I want them to see, hey, we're celebrating you and all the great work you did. Uh, but yeah, I, and I like being pinged as well. Like there's people who regularly um, ping me and I'm I'm happy because like you said, I, I, I want to be alerted like you've put something out that I know I'm going to appreciate. Like there's people that just are thoughtful. They're posting about events I want to know about or just uh, a celebration, things like that. So I appreciate that too. And sort of like all apps, like you're saying the, the evolution, the LinkedIn algorithm is constantly changing. So, you know, you have to be mindful of what works or, or just simply ignore that and do what you want. You know, like Karen Martin is a power user. And for a while she was advising us to put links into the chat instead of the body of the post, right? She was saying LinkedIn was punishing you for taking viewers out of LinkedIn, right? They didn't want you to add a link that might take you to Eventbrite or your own website. But then she said that seemed to have changed. And I've tried it both ways, you know, as an example, you know, when we advertise this episode on LinkedIn and I tag you, Tracy, <laughs> I'll probably include the link to the podcast in the post, right? I just find that the simplest and most direct. But in the past, I've moved it into the chat. And then that's also helpful if you've got like two links to share. Uh, and the last thing I want to bring up is just cost. You know, like all apps, we sort of dwell on the cost a little bit. And there is a free version of LinkedIn versus a premium version. And as much as I use it, I am still quite happy using, uh, happy using the free version. And even though a wise person once said, if an app is free, you are the product. I accept that. I am happy producing content. Maybe it'll be another book. So I might be the product now, but then I'll get a product out of it later. And that's a bargain I can get behind. And you're still on the free version too, right? 
Yes, I'm still on the free version as well. I'm not spending any additional money. I also have noticed, you know, now that I'm out and about more, right? I'm I'm now that co we're we're post COVID and I'm going to conferences and I I'm going to clients and I'm out and about. I have noticed that surprisingly that there's still a lot of people not on LinkedIn, which kind of blows my mind, right? You, you, that's something that we're very engaged in, um, and it's part of our world. Yet there's a lot of people that are not on LinkedIn. So I'll just give you a quick example. You know, I, I tend to connect with my Greenbelt students or my students at UCSD Health or people in the Navy, and they're not there. I mean, it's like, where are you guys? Or even Costco, like there's people at Costco that they're just not on LinkedIn. And so it's really kind of interesting to like think, wow, um, we spent a lot of time there. And there's a lot of people we know, but there are still a lot of people not on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. I kind of understand it with the defense uh, organization like the Navy, but mm -hmm. you're right. Maybe it's younger. Maybe it's generational. Who knows? Maybe okay. we're old fogies. I have no idea. <laughs> but anyway, we're both in uh, happily LinkedIn users. So if you're yes. not, you should check it out. I'm Elizabeth Swan. You're listening to the Just in Time Cafe podcast. In a short while, you'll get to hear our interview with Mike Vasquez and Jeff Tragesser of the life sharing of UC San Diego Health. For Q&A, we're wrestling with the topic of work relationships. How much time should you invest in getting to know the people you work with? And I was discussing what made a good coach or a mentor recently, and one of the through lines was that that person cared about you as a person, right? That made them good. And if you care about a person, you spend some time getting to know them. Uh, and then as part of that conversation, one of the people said that she considered that part of her job to be fluff. And I've heard that too. So some people roll their eyes when they refer to like the idle chit chat, you know, of getting to know people. But in the transactional world, which you, you and I spend a lot of our time in, those conversations form essential bonds between departments, between process steps. And considering our upcoming interview, those conversations and connections are critical in something like the life sharing process. You know, there's the patient, the healthcare worker, the family, the people who transport organs, the team who perform the transplants. And, you know, and how can you have such a complex and emotionally fraught process succeed if you don't invest in getting to know the people on some level? So Tracy, you and I are people people, but how do you advise others on this need to connect? That's a great question. And you know, I feel like, like you, it's an absolute necessity. If people don't think you care about them or about, about the people that work there, they're not going to care about you. They're not going to care about what you want. They're not going to care about the job and they'll, they'll check out. And I think it's very surprising um, when people say, oh, it's just fluff. And because you can get the work done and it's done, check the box, but people feel empty. And that to me is a um, surefire way to empty people's tanks and not fill them. And I think there's this sort of um, belief that people fill their tanks when they're not at work uh, so that you fill your tank outside and then you come to work to get drained. This is something that should not happen, but apparently it's the expectation, it's, it's accepted. And that needs to change quickly. The workplace is evolving 
um, very much. It's no longer what it was like in the 50s, 60s, or 70s. People want to feel productive and actually enjoy work. And if you don't make it a joyful place, you, these people will leave and they'll find another place to work. So I think it's absolutely critical. And I actually care too. I, I, it's really hard for me not to care about the people that I'm working with. I don't even know how that would work. Right? <laughs> so, um, and so I kind of, where I land on that is, you know, I sometimes work with leaders to insert connection and it's also under the guise of fun, right? Like if there's a meeting that we end 20 minutes early, we just kind of, I just tell people to go around the room and just ask people what they did for fun this weekend or what, you know, what's something they learned in the last year that they like, or what new book are they reading? It's just, just simple things to have things ready. I feel like sometimes people feel like you can only connect when it's like a, you know, a company, um, out gathering, like mm. go to a ball game that happens once a quarter. Really? You're only going to connect with people once a quarter. They need daily connection daily. And it doesn't mean that you have to spend a lot of time doing it. It could be a very simple, quick thing to make people feel connected to a team. And if you want to, if you want people to be successful and thrive, it's an absolute necessity. If they don't connect they will just disengage. And we already know that we are successfully failing at this. <laughs> Not me and you, but as a, as in a, a, you know, as corporate America, they're failing. Yeah. yeah. The, the quiet quitting that goes on. I think it's exactly what you say. It's the people not feeling acknowledged and, and feeling empty that it can't yeah. just be about the job. And also what you said to me is another insight which is you go around the room and you ask hey what books are you reading now on a simple level you're getting to know that person better but on a broader level that is that might result in learning something you didn't know so i feel like i'm constantly learning from people asking really simple questions that are connection questions but i'm learning i'm finding something out i didn't know and i often i, I just i'm enriched by it and I had a colleague who once started emails with the information she wanted or the task she wanted done. And as a result, she kind of had a reputation of being a little cold. And one time she just asked me about it and she didn't know kind of how to address that the way she was being viewed. And I said, you know what? Why don't you try starting your emails with like, hi, how you doing? I hope everything's going well. Yeah, something like that. Something really simple. And years later, she told me that was one of the most helpful things anyone told her. And, you know, because forever after she dropped an email, she went back to the beginning and she had a little, hi, how's it going? Like, whatever. Didn't have to be long. But the simple tweak, it, she said it helped her form better bonds with clients and colleagues. So any other words to the wise, Tracy, for you? Yeah, I have one. And um, this came from a manager at Costco. We And we were talking about leadership. And she actually used to work at Starbucks, too. And we were I was doing a leadership course. Uh, on site at Costco. And this was a young manager. And I was so impressed by this thought that she had when we talked about good leaders. And it just really applies to just relationships. She said, never put tasks before people. Just keep that as a, as a, as just a general rule, never put tasks before people. And you probably have gone into work one day at nine o'clock or eight o'clock or whatever time you get there. And then somebody just rushes up to you, goes, I need this paperwork done. <laughs> Hi, 
right? And, How you doing? <laughs> yeah, and um, it it just feel it makes people feel like they're not being seen. And it's just an easy, simple thing. People need to be seen. And you don't know what just happened in their life. You don't know. Now that I'm older, I can really appreciate people are struggling. They are struggling. Not everybody gets their tank filled on the weekends. Sometimes they are more drained at home than coming to work. And work is a break. But, you know, you don't really know what's happening. And it's just see people you know, make, see people first and mm -hmm. then get to the task. The task will get done, but yeah. you got to see people. You so see I think I'm handing that over. I wish I remembered her name. Uh, cause, uh, it was a great, it was a great comment. And I just, it was so simple and powerful at the same time. Yeah. So you just hit on another thing, which is remembering people's names, but that's for another topic for another day. But I love <laughs> your expression. Really good you are, that, you too. are, you are. And I also, I love your expression filling your tank that always sticks with me. And I always think of you that way. Like if you're going off and you're going to do like a trip to mammoth with your kids or something, I think, Oh yeah, Tracy's filling her, filling her tank. Um, so it's not fluff. It is not chit chat. Everyone, everyone sim simply wants to be acknowledged, right? Research shows again and again, it's worth more than cash to people. So think about a simple question, a comment, an observation you can make, with the person you work with and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. I'm Tracy Rourke and you're listening to the Just In Time Cafe podcast. We host these monthly. So you can go to www.jitcafe and go to our podcast page. Coming up next, it's our featured guests, Mike Vasquez and Jeff Trageser. Tracy, why don't you tell our listeners a little about Mike and Jeff? Love to. So Jeff Trageser is the executive director for Life Sharing and has been working at OPO since 2005. What's OPO? I don't know. <laughs> we'll have to look it up. <laughs> he earned his bachelor's of science and master's of science degrees in nursing from SDSU and has been a registered nurse since 1998. Jeff has over 30 years of experience working in the San Diego healthcare systems and has authored and co-authored several manuscripts in peer-reviewed journals on topics related to organ donation. Mike Vasquez has been the Director of Quality and Performance Improvement at Life Sharing for the past eight years. He was introduced to quality principles during his time as a sonar technician in the US Navy submarine force nuclear reactor and high explosives called for quality control. Absolutely. He spent some time managing quality at a blood donation center. It's highly regulated. And he also has two years as a quality specialist at the UC San Diego Heart and Lung Transplant Centers. And we are honored to have them at the cafe to Absolutely. talk about their very important work in saving lives. Welcome, Jeff and Mike. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us at the cafe to talk about life sharing. We are very excited to hear about you guys' journey uh, for process improvement. Elizabeth and I are very familiar with life sharing because we teach the green belt and the black belt classes at UCSD Health. And we've got a number of people that have gone through our process or our classes and we've seen some of the really exciting projects. And so, of course, we wanted to interview you guys. So 
So we obviously know what you guys do, but you guys can probably tell our audience better. Can you tell our audience a little bit about what life sharing does and and what you do and how long you've been around? Maybe a sense of kind of how you've come along over the years. So I'll start if you want. Give Mike a break. Uh, we life sharing is is an organ procurement organization in a nutshell. So. All organ procurement organizations in the country are federally designated. There's 56 of them. And so we cover San Diego and Imperial County. Our job is to find the deceased donors, um, to work with their families, um, to, to advocate for organ donation when the families say yes to donation. And then we do the workup, the managing, the, the testing of the, the deceased donors. And we find that we, we, we manage the, the allocation of the organs for the recipients. So our role is to um, help the 110 plus thousand people on the organ waiting list get their transplants from anyone who can be a donor here in San Diego and Imperial counties. We've been around as a department of UCSD, I believe since the late 60s when UCSD started doing some transplants. And as that grew, this department at UCSD's job was to find recipients for UCSD. In 1980, the federal government passed the law, the National Organ Transplant Act. They said, well, you can only have one organ procurement organization per area. So at that time, Sharp, Scripps, UCSD each had their own. The, they all got together before my time here um, and said, hey, you know what? UCSD is doing this really well. Let's let UCSD manage all of the organ um, operations, you know, finding the, the donors for all of us, you know, because we want to make sure though that, you know, you're not favoring UCSD. So we, at that time, changed our name, branched off. We have our, um, you know, we're off site because we really want to make a point. We're not here getting organs for UCSD. We're getting organs for everybody who needs a transplant so that the sickest patient that's the best match gets the organ. It's, there's not uh, any, any, any one transplant center getting um, favoritism over another. And so that, I believe, officially happened in 1986-ish. And uh, I can send you slides if you want more granular details on that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Um, I had no idea kind of the range you guys had um, uh, that you were, and I'm not surprised that you were looked to, right? As, hey, you know, they've got some, they've got a good thing going. How about they run it? Um, have there been, um, let's see, how about you, Mike? I noticed uh, your title is performance improvement versus process improvement. Um, okay. Are there specific metrics you track um, to you, you to use it to gauge your success? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, and you know, organ donation and transplant is highly regulated. So there's all sorts of accountability measures um, uh, and they come in the form of different outcome measures. So uh, for one, obviously how many organs for transplant are you procuring out of the potential in your donor service area? Uh, that's the big one now. Um, it makes sense. Uh, we have a certain amount of deaths that uh, occur in our two counties, and um, you know not all are suitable for donation. Actually, very few are. Um, but from those that really do have true potential, how many organs are you, are you procuring? Um, then um, there's you know the amount of organs per donor, amount of donors that are potential, and then also um, 
every organ procured for transplant comes with its own challenges. So we definitely track the outcomes of individual organs to assure that we're not falling behind, uh, you know, with, with one process versus another. Um, yeah, and they, there's many more that go into that authorization rate. Um, you know, there's so much, that's where it all starts. You can't really get very far until you you got the yes. Definitely track that. Um, and then also we, you know, most of our operations, all of our operations are really done at remote hospitals. Um, we're always, it's always an away game for us. So we track how how well the hospitals are uh, cooperating and, and getting referrals to us. Um, so all sorts of things to measure. Um, that's fascinating because I know I hear authorization rate in a lot of the projects that we're in, you know, because some of it, I'm sure you're aware of all the the nuance of what goes into that, but, you know, with best intentions, you know, that you might miss an authorization. Yeah, I, um, when I first found out about you guys, you know, I think about what you do, which first of all is amazing and much needed, but then I think about the process piece of this, right? So everything is event, well, not everything, but a lot of this is event driven that you have no control over, right? You're waiting for somebody to die, right? And mm -hmm. then you have to go through, are they viable? And everything is sort of event driven. And so turning on a dime with these processes, and then also it's at a time where people are very fragile, right? It's not like you know, there's this sensitivity around losing a loved one. And now we're like, so how about their organs? Right? You know? <laughs> so really important to get these processes working right. So um, tell us a little bit about your journey of process improvement, highlighting any, you know, like what have you guys been doing over the last couple of years with process improvement, if you're okay with sharing? I can share a bit on that. So, um, yeah, there's always a demand for for organs. Um, you know, as Jeff mentioned, there's over a hundred thousand people waiting for one. Um, so, mm -hmm. you would think that the there's a constant pull, uh, but really, um, you know, transplant centers have their requirements and 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 their standards for what they're willing to accept. And um, you know, we are dependent on that, that call from the hospital saying that we have a referral. Uh, so. A lot of it is um, as much as you want to have full control of things, as much as, as you want to prepare for the operations, you just you really never know what's going to come to your plate on any given day. So um, just with so many stakeholders, so many roles, I think process improvement wise, we're really focusing mostly on relationships, um, just making sure we have cooperation when we need it. Um, you know, working at all these different hospitals, there's different if we're if we're not managing it correctly, there could be different uh, expectations everywhere you go, different cultures and whatnot, different policies if you're not on top of it. So it's really just trying to create uniformity in the environment we work at and um, and cooperation. So an awful lot of PIs on relationships. Yeah, I mean, I wanna come back to something Jeff mentioned, which is unlike any other process or arena within the hospital, this isn't about patient satisfaction, right? And you really are relying on, like, I think what you just talked about, there's relationships and there's all these different metrics. And Jeff, did you say that was some of the underpinnings of why process improvement was so critical? Yeah. If I recall, again, I was, I want to say I was a newer manager, maybe 10 plus years ago, and the employee incentive program was mostly based on patient satisfaction scores. And, and my predecessor 
had said, well, you know, we don't have that. So we don't have, our patients aren't alive. They're not in a position to, to sh share that. And I think had worked out this, you know what though, our, our, our process improvement is a, is a way that we can also kind of look at our performance and keep staff engaged and really looking, are we doing the best that we can do? And I think that we made some changes. Mike made some changes when he came on board to, it wasn't about the number of PIs anymore now, we're really focusing on the quality of them. And because there was, I think, if for a period there, we were just trying to ask all employees to work on some sort of process improvement. You needed to have, it needed to be measurable and all of those things, but not all of them were at the same level. And, uh, and so we recently revamped it to lower the number that everyone needs to do. But there's a certain um, a piece that can be measured over time and sustained. And so that's what Mike's team's been doing too, like doing sustainability checks or effectiveness checks. Um, and that's kind of how we, we we came to be. And I think it, it does work well because there isn't really a good proxy for patient satisfaction. But, uh, you know, once UCSD really got more engaged and embraced the whole Lean Six Sigma, you know, that really fit well for us. What, which is why I think you see a lot of our staff because they are very much focused on what are we doing? Is this the best way to do it? And are there better ways to do it? And I think Lean Six Sigma has given them the roadmap on how to do that more effectively. All of it. Yeah. Yeah, um, you just mentioned we see so many of your folks and and your folks show up for each other. Like I'm always really impressed when I'll say, okay, you're gonna have a report out on all your projects and all these other folks come in from lay sharing to hear you know, the latest uh, effort that was done. And that is just so great to see, um, that's great. awesome. I didn't know that was happening so much, but that's great yeah. to hear. Do you have any um, success stories that you want to share that you can share any, um, whether it's cultural or project-based that you've accomplished at Life Sharing that, that you could share with our audience? We had a, we did have a, a record-breaking year last year with the amount of organs transplanted um, from our DSA. Uh, I think when we grew up, it was 15%, was it? Or yeah, fifteen percent growth in organs transplanted, twenty percent growth in organ donors. Yeah, which is is pretty significant in our mm -hmm. in our industry. Right. So so and that's just you know having a, a growth of transplanted organs. You know that that growth was a bit higher than the amount of donors, and it just kind of speaks to um, our aggressiveness in pursuing maybe the less ideal donor. You know, you, you may previously you could say okay, in this donor. Uh, could potentially offer four organs for transplant, but now you know if, if there's an opportunity for one, even a slim opportunity, we're you know we, we're pursuing it and we're making sure that our our processes are able to to take on that load to to pursue all, all the marginal uh, organ donors. And I think um, uh, one of our biggest PIs, uh, one of our greatest successes from last year, is the um, aggressive kidney allocation protocol. Essentially, you know when. Um, we have a kidney that we feel is transplantable. Maybe our immediate uh, transplant centers around us may not feel that way. Um, we, we do have a method for um, getting in contact with transplant centers, maybe across the country uh, that maybe previously we otherwise would not have reached out to, or we don't have, we didn't have the systems for that. Um, so really just expanding our reach, um, trying to find that pull again uh, for who wants this organ. Um, and then also, um, you know, besides establishing the contacts, there's always development and uh, and perfusing the organ to make it viable for longer to buy us time for placement. 
So I think our um, those are probably the two most impactful PIs, just uh, making the, the, the organ viable for longer and finding somebody somewhere that's willing to take a, a chance on it. Mm. And then for our audience, in case they're not familiar with the acronym PI, I'm assuming that's a process improvement project? Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, that's our shorthand. Yeah, no, we live in a land of shorthand, so we're just always, you know, making sure that we we spell it out just in case there's one person out there that's thinking um, exactly what are they talking about. So um, those are really, those are great successes. And the the numbers are so impressive, you know, that you guys, although watching me and Tracy watching, you know, the the students and the and the projects, we're not surprised. Um, but it is still incredibly, and, and it's also obviously in healthcare, these things impact human beings. And even though, you know, you're, you are impacting people's lives, right? So there is the, 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 uh, recipient. So what are the things that for you are the biggest challenges, uh, in becoming a process focused organization? I think for one, it's the the variability in demand, um, or or you know, we we had to load up our staffing for um, you know that one weekend where we get a dozen calls, but you know there's going to be many times where we don't get that, and and you know you're trying to balance uh, the utilization of your resources, and you don't really know what's going to come. Mm -hmm. You know that's that's really tough. Also, um, just the fact that there's so many stakeholders in this. Um, mm -hmm. It presents a lot of challenges in the process. It just makes for a really complex environment. Um, so trying to, it's hard to map out a process. It's hard to account for every obstacle that may show up. Um, so just just kind of getting a sense of, of if you're if you're struggling with a process, getting a sense of like what it is, what the expectations are, like where is their value? Because there's so many opinions about that at any given time. Um, so I think I think it's just it's very clear to understand. Oh, sorry, it's very difficult to understand like what what's at stake here and who cares and, and uh, who's who's going to impact um, how we go about protocolizing this. So. I think, yeah, I think I'll, to expand that too, I think what, what you know, in addition to what Mike's saying is that you know it's um it's so episodic. You know, we don't have we can't plan ahead the way our workflows, as Mike pointed out. Some days there's just, we have no donors, no one, no families we're working with, and some days it's we're overwhelmed, and so to have like processes that are systemic and you know they they have to be designed to just someday just be thrown out the window we're just going to have to figure it out and but yet once that happens we need to come back to our systems and our processes um, and i think that's the challenge i've always felt here in my time that it's easy to drift away from a good sound process and and but so we have to but my, myself and some of the other leaders, making sure we're getting back to the um, the original plan of how we're going to operate. You know, just because one day, you know, we had to break some rules and to make things happen, we need to go back to the rules and then tidy up what we've done. And uh, Mike talked about organ allocation. You know, we we should be going straight down the list. So if you get an organ offer, you would think the top person on the list would go, "Thank you very much. I want this organ." But not all organs are great. Okay, mm. as we get older, our organs aren't. That's great. So they most some of the patients at the top list might not want that, but there might be somebody way down the list. And the only way we're going to get to them is to break the rules. And so there's a there is a variance program within the you know the, the the regulatory body that we work with 
And I know Mike and his team, we have to do that every month. You know, why did this organ go to this person? You know, you skipped over a few people and, and there's reasons for that. And um, so that to me is one of the challenges. I would love for things to be much more just step yeah. by step by step oh, yeah. and no variation from those steps, but that yeah. to me is one Can't of the do it. challenges. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry, Elizabeth. Well, just so many things just sparked by that. Um, I realize you are heavily regulated, right? So, and as oh, yeah. as you would want, but to your point, that prevents you from doing like the right thing. You know, in some cases, it's like, well, this is actually a better outcome, even though it breaks the rules. But we have to answer for that. And the other thing you're talking about, which you know, Tracy and I are steeped in trying to help them manage, you know, reducing variation. But you can't mm -hmm. reduce the variation of demand um, because that's just the nature of or, you know, people and life and, and mm -hmm. ability to donate. So it's almost as if, as opposed to understanding, you know, what is the pace of demand in this process? It's building a process so robust that it can flex. Like, yeah. I mean, I think about, and this is more predictable, right? We have, we've worked with places like Zingerman's mail order and they have to suddenly flex to 500 empl more employees every Christmas you know, season. So they've got to have a hiring process that can go along very normally and then suddenly break all the rules and be very different. So it's almost like, okay, if we're going to have something that suddenly is going to expand and could expand to, let's look back and see how much it expands. Like, how do we handle that? Um, how do we get more robust at that? So that's interesting. That'll help me, I think, talk to your um, the folks in your in your group. Yeah, even Zingerman's, it's the the volume is predictable though, because yes. every Christmas they have it. Where in this case, I'm just curious. I think I know the answer to this, but I'm gonna go ahead and ask it anyway. Do you guys have uh, a particular cycle where you know it gets busier? Um, I'll just say, you know, and again, I don't know, but for example, um, we know a few people that. <laughs> It seems that there's more people die in November, October, November. I don't know if that's true. Um, and then the other thing is, <laughs> now don't judge me when I say this, cycles of the moon. <laughs> you know, there's this rumor that more people are coming to the hospitals, more babies are, you know, uh, born around full moon cycles. Is there is there any cycles related to people dying and that you guys are like, oh, this cycle's coming up, so we better get ready. I've heard of all sorts of theories. Yeah. Uh, I've heard, you know, the the end of of, uh, of school sessions, at the end of the semester. I've heard holidays. But when I was in Oregon, um, I heard when the rain started, you know, um, and the depression set in. I heard all sorts of things, but I never really seen a correlation. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I haven't seen You're any over. particular month being consistently slower, consistently bit busier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought the answer was, but I thought I'd ask anyways, because I would be very intrigued if that wasn't the answer. <laughs> tell you in the qu first quarter of 2021, things were off. The regular flow wasn't there. We were busy throughout 2020. 2021, it was weird. We were getting just as many referrals, but very few donors. When we did have the donors, very few organs. And um, it took a while for us. We kind of had to do a retrospective review after three months. We thought, well, what is going on? When we went back, and what one thing that we could notice, and it, it was because of the post surge, uh, COVID surge, something about the hospital admissions had changed. 
the type of referrals were different. What we call eligible, meaning having pot or potential to be an organ donor, um, was much lower. And so just as many referrals, just as many hospital admissions, but it was it was a lot of delayed care. Mm -hmm. I think it had a lot of cancer, other things. That cancer in general precludes donation. So those kind of things yeah. lowered the pool of actual people who could be donors. And so that was the one thing I've seen in my nearly 20 years here, um, who have seen some sort of like defined uh, change in the rhythm. But since then, it's been back to... Interesting. We've been, yeah. A mm -hmm. huge variation. You have you could have twenty donors in one month, four in the next, um, and sixty. If you look at it, you know we we pull the scope back, zoom in all over, we just, and it's just constantly flowing. We can't make any sense out of it. Nobody has. There's fifty six other OPOs that haven't made any sense out of it. We're all trying. You really need to have at least a one year cohort to kind of. I think if you're looking at it weekly or monthly, you're not going to get much useful information. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Annually, you can you can say whether things are changing or not. Yes. So, um, so 2024 is upon us. What are you planning to incorporate or what are some of your potential goals for process improvement? I know that you had mentioned earlier, you're focused more on quality, not quantity. Um, so tell us a little bit about what, what your thoughts are for 2024 and life sharing's process improvement. Uh, I know, um, there's a clinical initiative now to to improve the uh, outcome of of uh, lungs procured for transplant, making sure that they actually uh, do get transplanted. They're very sensitive organ, require um, lots of clinical management before procurement. They require all sorts of management afterwards. Um, so uh, there are tools that we can utilize to improve um, the outcome of those lung procurements. There's lung pumps. And there's machines you place the lungs in and, and to perfuse them. Um, so I know they're looking at, at utilizing that as much as possible and getting all that arranged beforehand. Um, also, uh, the transportation challenges that go with extending our reach um, or extending the pool for for those lungs. Um, it's just we we found that that's probably the uh, the organ uh, with the greatest opportunity for improvement. So I know there's clinical initiatives with that. Um, there's always that's stuff going on with hospital development as well, but. Yeah, with the, that clinical, what Mike's alluding to is we've ramped up and getting more and more organs out there for the transplant centers. Transplant centers are sometimes saturated with these organs. And so we may have another organ in the pipeline, but all the centers nearby are just, yeah, it's nothing terrible about the organ, but we just don't have the capacity to take one more. So there might be somebody, though, a few states away that can use it. And so that's where these pumps become really important. We can keep these organs viable for longer to get them to where the, the maybe the next recipient would be. And then, um, and like Mike said as well, transportation. Flights are very expensive and try, we're trying to find ways to, to be more creative, um, to, to find homes for these organs and, and get for the recipients, get them these organs that they, they can use, but um, having to mitigate the time outside the body and the distance to travel is is, is a challenge, but we, we, we're finding some new technologies that's exciting. You know, you, you recently mentioned that we do work in a highly regulated environment, and we talked about measures earlier, but there's also regulations and measures on the transplant side that encourage them to pull and to say yes more often, uh, to mm -hmm. take to take more risk. Traditionally, they would get uh, penalized for taking a risk on an organ, and if it didn't work out, they would, you know, get scrutinized for that. What, you know, why did you take that risk? Well, because this person was was dying. Uh, so the, the regulations have changed. Some of the outcome measures have changed to where 
it, it really encourages them to say yes more often, which is definitely opening up opportunity on our end. Um, and we're trying to take full advantage of that and, and make sure that we we um, get those marginal organs to people who are willing to give it a shot. That's incredibly encouraging because I find, and I'm sure this is a reality, that changing regulations is the toughest aspect of this, right? That, you know, it's like going to Congress, you know, what, how do you get this? And this isn't realistic anymore. This doesn't um, make organs viable for as many people as it could. Um, and so that's encouraging that you see that shifting. Cause uh, it's, yeah. we, we, so transplant, as Mike said, you know, they've got their pressure to have the best outcomes and get the most people transplanted. OPOs have a lot of pressure to get as many organs out there for the transplant centers to use, but sometimes they conflict. And 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 like what Mike was talking about, there was, if you're going to be penalized for a bad outcome, you're less likely to take a, a chance on a less than perfect organ. And that's the only way you get more people transplanted. There's only so many really perfect organs, um, you know, for lack of a better term, but, um, you know, but it's, it's really driven by Medicare or CMS as one piece of it. And the other is the OPTN, which is a division of, of HRSA. So Department of Health and Human Services, they have the equality, um, in, in, in certain metrics that have to be met for transplant and for OPOs, but then also CMS. And so there's this, if we're all being pressured to get more organs out there, then the transplant centers have to be incentivized to take more. And also we've got to make sure we have the capacity to make that happen because you know, if hospitals are full and they can't bring another recipient in for another transplant, there's, there's lots of moving pieces that, 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 that can, can throw a monkey wrench in the whole system. So but it's yeah. good that we're all growing and looking at things differently. And I think that's, that's been healthy for us to have these new metrics. Mm -hmm. It's such a incredibly complicated and human process. Like, wow, just listening to it, I'm like, there are so many factors at work and they all have to line up for this thing to be successful. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Absolutely. And then, then there's a regulatory constraint you have to account for, which disrupts that plan. You, you, everybody sat down and, and brainstormed for, you know, you have people out there, uh, you got to give them the discretion to make decisions and, and be quick on their feet out in the case. And then you got to pull them back and say, no, there's this is a constraint we have to follow for the sake of you know patient safety or for what, you know, and it's just kind of, it's a tough balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, wow. I mean, that really gives us uh, some perspective in terms of how complicated the process is. And ultimately, I mean, there are 100,000 people waiting for these organs. So how do we maximize and optimize these processes so that people can get organs, right? It's more quickly. And um, and so I love hearing about your stories. And mm -hmm. I already feel this anxiety like, yes, this has to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it work really well. Uh, so is there anything we didn't ask you that you'd like to share with our audience? I mean, I just, I think that, you know, we, we talk about this and it does seem hard, but at the end of the day, it's so, the reason you see so many of our people engaged and work on it is so rewarding. I think that everyone here in every role is really proud of the work we do. Even when you had a bad day, you had a bad day trying to help somebody. And mm -hmm. I think that's what keeps us, centered and you know can we will talk sometimes a lot about the data and the processes but at the end of the day it's really just about helping people 90 percent of americans when polled say they support or strongly support organ donation and so we're here to kind of 
to make sure that can happen. Mm -hmm. That is a lovely um, statement. Even when you have a bad day, you're having a bad day trying to help somebody. Mm -hmm. That's great. I like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, how would people reach out to you? Um, what's the best way to contact you guys if anybody wanted to have more information or get more info? I would say uh, my, my email address. You can, uh, I'll post that. We'll yeah, post, post it. it. That's probably the best way. Okay. Lifesharing.org. They can visit. It's a uh, loaded with all sorts of information and contacts. Yeah. yeah great overview. Follow us on social media too. If you follow Life Sharing on Instagram or, or, or Facebook or we do LinkedIn too, um, those are the best places. They're great stories, you know, from recipients, from donors. Mm. And, um, yeah. our, our our PR um, manager, Anna, is just amazing at putting these things together. You know, we we had a rider um, on the Donate Life float in the Rose Parade. And so there's a lot of media coverage of that and so it's it's a good place plus from there usually you can find links to kind of contact us as well um we'll provide all those that's lovely to hear and i know people would want to hear stories because they're great um and thank you so much jeff and mike for coming on the just in time cafe tracy and i are so hugely appreciative thank you thanks for having us thank, thank you, you. We'll leave you a link to register for our February 28th webinar, Public Relations for a Problem-Solving Culture, Storytelling at Work, with guest host Bethany Foy, the Continuous Improvement Leader for Ohio Mutual Insurance Group. She uses storytelling and PR techniques to engage leadership support. So we are very psyched about that one. Yes, we are. And I, I really feel like this is needed because I feel like people do need to promote process improvement better in their own organizations. Absolutely. And stay tuned for the re-release of our book, The Problem Solvers Toolkit, coming out soon. Woohoo! The cover reveal is in the works and we're going to keep you posted on the relaunch. I can't wait for that too. Either. So stay tuned for all the news by joining our community at the Just In Time Cafe if you haven't already. Thank you for joining me and Tracy. You are our favorite thing about the Just In Time Cafe, and we look forward to being your lifelong learning partners. Join us every month for your jolt of lean caffeine. <laughs>